Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleagues and friends. Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and... Dalibur Rohaj, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along the line that runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea. We call this the Eastern Front, and about why those issues matter to the United States. Today, we're pleased to welcome back, prior to the anniversary of the Russian invasion uh, or, or re-invasion or further invasion uh, of Ukraine, our colleague and friend, uh, Fred Kagan, who is also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, director of its Critical Threats Project, and also an important uh, factor in the Institute for the Study of War, which has really done the best uh, tracking of uh, the war uh, across the past year. Fred, welcome back. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fred, uh, as I said, it's coming up on a year. Let's do a little bit of a little look back, an assessment of where we are now and where we might be headed. So just over to you to, to give us your thoughts on, on those three subjects. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure to uh, to speak with you all and, and be on this uh, fantastic show. The Russians reinvaded on February 24th, 2022. They made rapid gains, but none of them decisive. The Ukrainians stopped them around Kiev, and then the Russians withdrew. Then the Russians reoriented and began focusing in the east, and we had a series of offensive operations that led them to the seizure, ultimately, of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. And they had taken Lysychansk by about the beginning of July, whereupon Russian offensive gains basically stopped. And it is remarkable that the Russians have effectively not taken any operationally significant territory since the beginning of July last year. It's quite remarkable. It hasn't been for lack of trying. The Russians have been conducting offensive operations against Bakhmut for many, 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 many months. They have not managed to take it. They've not managed to encircle it. They yet may. We can come back to that. It's not inconceivable that they could persuade the Ukrainians to uh, pull out. Um, neither is it inevitable. The, the Russians have lost many thousands and almost certainly tens of thousands of dead um, in that effort. Russians have launched uh, a new offensive operation, primarily in Luhansk uh, Oblast, but also in uh, western Donetsk Oblast uh, in January. That offensive is currently probably passing through its major phase, I would say. Um, we can talk more about what makes me say that, but we're suffice it to say that ISW has been tracking which Russian forces have been committed to the line already. And uh, we're observing that they seem already to have committed to that offensive. Just about everything that they likely have, with the exception of one formation that we haven't seen anywhere. And that offensive has taken vir made virtually no gains. Uh, the Ukrainians, by contrast, were able to uh, accomplish three significant victories, I would say. The first was stopping the Russians around Moscow and then prompting their withdrawal. Now you said Moscow, for <laughs> I'm sorry. having a Napoleon flashback, I think. Oh dear, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Stopping the Russians around Kiev and then prompting their withdrawal. 
There's a narrative out there, by the way, that I want to take on explicitly that the Ukrainians have never conducted a counteroffensive operation or not capable of conducting counteroffensive operations and so forth. And I, I want to make a couple of observations about that because it's very important. The Ukrainians did not conduct a, a counteroffensive operation around Kiev, of course. Uh, they stopped the Russians and then the Russians pulled back. But if you actually look closely at what was going on, the Russians pulled back because they didn't have a choice. They had reached a point where their front line was going to begin to crumble under uh, an increasing tempo of Ukrainian localized counterattacks. And so that wasn't as free a decision just to pull back from a failed effort as it appeared to be. The Russians fundamentally faced the decision of trying to withdraw in good order or retreating in disarray under Ukrainian counterattack. And by the way, they retreated in considerable disarray. Um, so there's a whole narrative about the Kyiv withdrawal that I think understates the role that the Ukrainians played in initiating counterattacks that prompted that withdrawal and not just the Russians deciding that they were going to go east. And then, of course, the Ukrainians conducted the lightning strike uh, in Kharkiv that was a mechanized counteroffensive. And it's I, I don't understand. There are people who are running around saying that this, the Russians just overran their supply lines and making a whole bunch of excuses for the Russians. Ukrainians put a bunch of mechanized brigades online, conducted a lightning counteroffensive, shocked the Russians, and had two elite Russian tank divisions, you know, flee the battlefield and leave their equipment. So that was a remarkable counteroffensive. And then, of course, the Kherson counteroffensive, in which the Ukrainians liberated the West Bank of the Dnipro, was a fascinating thing. It didn't look like a normal counteroffensive, but it was a very skillful combination of isolation followed by pressure that caused the Russians to withdraw. Unfortunately, the West did not provide the Ukrainians with the equipment that they needed to continue the counteroffensive momentum that they had established. And so the Ukrainian counteroffensive stalled out uh, after uh, they liberated Herso Western Kherson, and that allowed the Russians to regain the initiative with their offensive in, uh, in January. Good news is, as I said, that offensive doesn't look to be going anywhere. And so the Ukrainians will have an opportunity to uh, launch a counteroffensive, although I suspect we probably will not see that until later in the spring and early summer, probably after the muddy season, just because of the, again, the timing of Western uh, support and then the interference of climatological factors here. Fred, as we... As we sort of speculate about what the Ukrainians might do uh, when the conditions are, and they've been remarkably operationally patient throughout the war. One thing that hasn't been much covered, at least in the sort of general press over this uh, last several months, is the Russian attempt to bolster their defenses north of Crimea, between Kherson and, and the peninsula, and, and even to a lesser degree, farther to the east, there's a line that sort of swings around that, uh, you know, connect uh, to back to Russia proper. What can you tell us about, you know, they, they've thrown out a lot of dragon's teeth and trench lines and stuff like that, but whether they I haven't seen much about what forces yeah. are, are there to uh, cover those obstacles or, or to man to man them. So the Russians have, have dug a lot of trenches all over the place. They've um, emplaced dragon's teeth. They've 
build fortifications. I can never entirely get out of my mind um, Patton's quip that uh, fixed fortifications are a monument to man's stupidity. Because you raise the question that matters. Defensive setups are relevant only insofar as soldiers defend them. Um, otherwise, they just become engineering obstacles to be removed. Um, there are Russian forces all through that area. Uh, they are not, on the whole, high-quality frontline troops. The Russians have committed uh, most of those to the front line. There are various concentrations of cats and dogs in various places throughout there. Um, I think that those are being gradually committed to the front line as well. But the, Ukraine, the Russians are, are keeping some in reserve. It's a very open question in my mind if a big Ukrainian counteroffensive smashed uh, through the Russian lines south of Zaporizhia and drove on Melitopol, uh, how many of the Russian defenders would stick around to find out what was going to happen? I don't know. Uh, you know, soldiers in armored vehicles, soldiers in defenses tend to hang around for a while. They don't tend to just run. If the reputation of the Ukrainian military, which has come from its cautiousness, this is a trait that is very important. Ukrainians have not lost a major fight that they've undertaken. And Ukraine has established a reputation in Russia that is similar to the reputation the Eastern Front had in Nazi Germany as uh, the place where you're sent to be punished. Literally, Russians actually say this to their own people all the time. You know, if you if you misbehave, we will send you to the front. Okay, well, that's that tells that's something about, you know, everybody's attitude on this. So I, I don't know. My hunch is that the Russian lines in Zaporizhia Oblast are thin enough and of poor enough quality that when the if and when the Ukrainians can concentrate enough properly equipped mechanized manpower there, they have a very good chance of breaking through. The problem with Crimea, as you know, Giselle, is is just terrain and the shape of the land. And it doesn't take a lot of troops in principle to defend a spit, you know, an isthmus that's that narrow. So that that's a whole other story. But in terms of pushing down down there, I think that's a feasible undertaking if the Ukrainians can mass the forces for it. The the downside is that it's probably easier to isolate, uh, you know. For Crimea? Yeah. It, it is. I mean, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of speculation that you could get into about ways in which the Ukrainians might think that they could take it and get through there. And after all, the Russians managed to get a lot of force through there at the start of this war with relatively little resistance in no small part because they achieved a degree of surprise down there. So depending on circumstances, when the Russians have been smoking in inappropriate places and causing large-scale explosions in the Crimean Peninsula, it has tended to generate a certain amount of panic that has clogged the Kerch Strait Bridge in the eastern direction, which is an interesting observation if you reflect on what might happen if people in Crimea thought that the Ukrainians were coming? Uh, the, the seaside property rates would plummet. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, well, the, uh, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> we already saw that uh, in the summer <laughs> with some very lovely videos <laughs> from the beach in Crimea. I want to ask you something, I, I guess, political and kind of replicate in my own words what journalists in the region are asking me and others. And that is, and I'll try to connect sort of two elements. One is people are fearing 
that the next few months with this offensive of Russia, new offensive that we keep talking about, we don't know much, we're waiting for it, nothing's happening, but that it's going to cost a lot of Ukrainian lives and it's going to be very bloody in the next few months. I know this is a bit out of context, but Maybe you can help us build context around that in either interpretation and then try to connect it, in my mind at least, with Putin's rhetoric. He It's not nothing new that for the last decade he's been talking increasingly about the West. But now in this war, just like we saw when was it yesterday with his State of the Union affair um, speech and the speech, he talked for hours in uh, a speech that is about Russia, about the West, increasingly justifying or trying to justify that Russia is not fighting a war against Ukraine, but is fighting a war against the West, because obviously that justifies much of the losses and helps motivate Russians to participate and flee less. So can you help us make sense of these two in terms of Russia's resolution to throw everything they continue to have or muster at Ukraine and what the outcome of that can be in the next few months? Let me start with the second point about the Russia's, uh, Putin's fixation on the West. As you know, Yulia, that's not new. That was the original justification for the war as well. The, the Putin's justification for this war was never just about Ukraine. It was always about NATO. And the set of ultimata that he delivered in various forms in December of 2021 and then in uh, repeating it in 2022 involved the disarmament of NATO, the, the destruction of NATO, the withdrawal of NATO forces from Eastern European states, pushing NATO back to its 1991 boundaries and, and a bunch of other things all having to do with NATO. That was even before the invasion. This is a very important point because first of all, it's 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 to say this isn't new. The rhetoric in some his rhetoric in some respects is focused increasingly on this is a war against the West because he needs to have an explanation for how it's not Ukraine kicking his butt. And it's not just about motivating Russians, it's also about explaining the failures because it's extraordinarily embarrassing to him especially given the deep racism that he's manifested toward Ukraine. He has to have, a, it can't be that the Ukrainians are defeating them. So that's picked up, but it's not fundamentally new and it's it's not even dramatically greater than it was before. What's important about this? What's important is we in the West continue to have conversations with ourselves and have negotiations in our own minds with the Russians as if we were actually talking to them. Um, in, and those negotiations center around Ukraine. And we have these conversations as if the issue for the Russians is Ukraine and where the line is in Ukraine. That's never been a satisfactory demand for Putin. The demands that Putin makes involve the destruction of NATO and the withdrawal of the United States back to hemispheric defense a la pre-World War II, which he thinks is our only proper. So we, we, we are continuing to have, live in a fictional world in our minds in which we can go back in a time machine and have some Minsk three kind of agreement that contains this back to Ukraine. Putin made it clear by this invasion and his justifications for it that that was not going to be a thing. And the, the, his, the, he has changed and his objectives have changed and the world has changed. And we've got to catch up to that. He's finally figured out a year into this that 
he's not going to accomplish his aims in any short period of time. And so he's now focused on setting conditions in Russia for a protracted war-ish. And I say ish because he continues to be unwilling to stop trying to make short-term gains, even as he sets conditions for the war. So he's permitted his forces very limited periods of operational pause, no periods of strategic pause, and required his Ministry of Defense and his military to regenerate massive amounts of combat, basically to regenerate the equivalent of the entire invasion force, because the Russians have lost the equivalent of the entire invasion force, and to regenerate it and then throw it immediately into combat. So the Russians have generated quite a lot of manpower, quite a much more limited amount of equipment, but <clears throat> they expend it as rapidly as they generate it. And that's what's going on. There, we could come to this later. There will be a clock that will start on the regeneration of a significant Russian military threat to NATO, but that clock is not going to start until Putin stops burning the military capability he's generating as fast as he generates it. He hasn't stopped doing that yet. The offensive is here. And I've been puzzled for some time about the way in which people in the West have been talking about the offensive to come after it was apparent that the Russians had committed big proportions of the, their available combat power to the offensive. We've now laid this out. So the team at ISW went through the entire order of battle for the Western military district, which is the, and the Russians are back to doctrinal structures. This is something... Giselle, if you want to nerd out about this, we can talk about the fact yeah, that the divisions are back. Divisions, right? brigades, regiments, um, I think battalions. I don't think they're in battalion tactical groups anymore. And also military districts. So they're they're fighting in military district structures. The Western military district has responsibility for the offensive in Luhansk. We've looked at, we, we know what the order of battle is for that. And we can account for the commitment of almost every single division with the exception of the second motorized rifle division. And I don't know I don't know where the Taman guards guys are. We had seen them training in Belarus and we'd heard reports they'd gone to to Luhansk. We haven't seen them. Every other formation, every other unit in the Western Military District is on the front fighting. So this is it. This 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 is the offensive. And it's not going anywhere. So since you alluded in your previous answer both to sort of great power geopolitics and to this question of regeneration of, of Russian forces, I'm wondering if I could ask you about the topic that has been sort of circulating around the time of the Munich Security Conference last week, namely this prospect of China assisting Russia in, in some somewhat more significant way by providing military equipment and extending the military industrial base to, to Russian users. Is this something that concerns you? What would be the practical ramifications on that on the battlefield and politically? Of course, it's concerning. I am skeptical that she will really lean into providing the Russians with lethal aid at scale. She has a huge problem in this war. Before the war, when he also thought that Putin was just going to roll over Ukraine like a rug, he was all for it. Looked great. Putin was going to split NATO for him, isolate the US, do a whole bunch of great things. She was all in. Then Putin was humiliated around Kiev. 
And I have this image in my mind of she looking at Putin after Kiev and going, dude, <laughs> like what, 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 what's going on here? But okay. And then he hung in and then the Kharkiv counteroffensive happened. And in my mind, I have she going, dude, like seriously? I mean, how, how is this, how is this happening? <laughs> and at that point, I think she really did start to recalculate. Because it became clear that Putin was actually uniting the West rather than splitting it. And he wasn't winning. She had backed him enough that she was starting to get serious blowback from the Euros for backing Putin. And as our colleague Dan Blumenthal has noted, this, this, all, this generated backlash in China within the party and among important constituencies who are looking at Xi and saying, um, sir, we, you know, why are we pissing off the Europeans? Why, why do we have the Germans talking about, uh, you know, decoupling with us because we're backing Putin in this war that he's losing? What, why are we doing this? And, and then you have Xi go to Germany and he meets with Schultz and he makes comments about the unacceptability of the use of nuclear weapons and threatening nuclear weapon and a whole bunch of other things like that. And at the same time, he's telling Putin, no, 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 I'm with you all the way. You absolutely, you know, you go, you'll get this. I, I, I have a hard time seeing Xi deciding that it's in his interest to go all in in a way that will drive the Euros to break with China or at least take that much more seriously, where he, he will start to pay a big price. And for what? It's still a losing cause. So I, I'm worried about it, but I think, th I think it's unlikely that she is really going to lean in in that way. I think there's also a, a question of PLA, Chinese military capabilities that would be really useful to the Russians <laughs> In the Ukrainian campaign. Tanks, Giselle. Tanks. Well, Everybody okay, needs but, tanks. Well, <laughs> nobody believes that more than me. <laughs> However, what 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 the Chinese need their tanks for is to crush their own protesters in Tiananmen Square. And you know, seriously, the primary mission of the PLA army is domestic. And all the investment of you know has been so Taiwan focused for so long that it's, you know, the Chinese who have a tiny number of quasi fifth generation airplanes, although we don't even know that, are they going to like give the chop those to? Well, no, but I don't think that that's, look, first of all, um, I can only, I can only repeat what Dan says about this because I'm not a China expert, but you know, look, the, the Chinese military buildup, which has been going on for decades, was not in the first instance aimed at Taiwan. It was aimed at, at a general modernization of the Chinese military. Well, but know. power so, projection, air and maritime power projection. But not only. It's also they've also reformed and modern, modernized the ground forces in in many ways. And so it's been a general purpose modernization program. But. Look, I mean, I'm sure that Putin would love to have fifth generation fighters. I'm sure the Chinese are not going to give him that, whatever their close equivalent of that is. Uh, wasn't the Su-57 supposed to be a fifth generation fighter? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I remember that. Okay. Anyway, it, I'm sure that Russia would love that. But look, right now, I'll put it to you this way, I, I, it, because I do keep saying tanks, and it's not just that I've spent you know my early years being formed by H.R. McMaster and recognizing that tanks are the solution to all problems. They're beautiful. But they are. Beautiful. <laughs> Tanks are excellent. But um, it, look, <laughs> the Russians have lost 
something like 2000 tanks in this war, uh, according to various estimates. Um, we, I mean, we're, we're citing about 1500 because there are a thousand confirmed killed. And then there are about the 500 that the Russians donated to Ukraine. That's about 16 tank regiments worth of tanks. And it's interesting that the units that we're not seeing being reconstituted and showing up again on the whole are tank units. So those two tank regiments that got overrun at Kharkiv and donated about 100 tanks to the Ukrainians, we haven't seen them. But aren't they producing a whole bunch? Isn't it that they are supposed to be producing over 200 uh, well, a year? Well, okay, 200 a year is not a whole bunch. <laughs> 200 a year is... A month. 200 a year is two regiments a year. You know, Germany produces like two a year. <laughs> well, okay, but Germany's not fighting this war. And, you know, we have lots of M1s. That's There are lots of tanks in the West if we got over ourselves on what we're prepared to give. But... Look, but I don't know what the number is. If you tell me it's 200 a year, that's that's helpful um, Over to me. But, from but, 200, but 200 is two, is two tank regiments worth of tanks. Mm. They've lost 16 tank regiments worth of tanks. So we're not seeing tank regiments on the whole being reconstituted because I don't think they have tanks for them. So they're reconstituting motorized rifle units, and which are but which are not even always motorized. Um, so a lot of them are just rifle units. The tank problem is a real problem. The Chinese could probably give them some tanks. Now, I don't know how many tanks they would give them. And then there's a whole bunch of other issues. But I don't. I just don't see the Chinese doing that. You know, if the Chinese want to start handing them 152 millimeter artillery rounds, I think the Russians would be very grateful for that. And I could imagine that happening because we're, we're probably not going to be able to trace artillery rounds back to China in quite the same way. And that would be unfortunate. That would be very bad. But in terms of really leaning in with high-end signature systems, I, I just I, there are things the Chinese could do, but I, I really think it's unlikely they will. I, I'm sure some artillery round would not detonate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would see the markings, and yeah, yeah, uh, sure. And then there'd be Chinese characters. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was going to ask about um, beyond beyond the China equipment that I think the, the point is excellent in terms of, yeah, if we're going to see tanks, Chinese tanks functioning or not, shooting or not on the Ukrainian battlefield, that's sort of the end of Chinese access to the best grade Euro market. Um, so I do think that there is reluctance there and, and it makes a lot of sense. The one thing that I also wanted to ask you about, I realize I ask you that often, but nevertheless, it's on everybody's mind is in the summer, I remember it was, um, particularly the British intelligence services going out and saying the Russians are running out of ammunition, they're running out of missiles. Um, and that's that. And then we saw through the fall, um, how the Russians rained missiles on Ukrainian territory with a lot of civilian casualties, but particularly critical infrastructure casualties in the West, um, scrambling to get these parts, um, old Soviet parts, etc. Over the last couple of months, that frequency in terms of missile raining has um, significantly decreased. So from your estimates, what are you expecting in the next few months through this, uh, the spring? Is um, Are the Russians indeed now running low? I've, so, I've heard some reports just over the last few days 
of launched missiles that failed. I don't know how much that is rumor and how much that is true. Um, but um, what do you expect in the coming months? More of the rain or are they indeed running low? Ukrainian Minister of Defense Zereznikov put out a great chart on this a number of weeks ago showing the proportion of each kind of missile system the Russians had left available. And they have expended overwhelming proportions of most of their uh, precision missiles. Um, and they have their ability to build more is very limited. Now, if you want to talk about an area that I'm very concerned about the Chinese helping them with, it's chips. Because this is this is the this is the pr principal limiting factor on the Russians' ability to to regenerate these kinds of systems is is chips. This is I'm I'm looking at the Iranians very closely in this regard as well because the Iranians are talking about setting up, actually have committed to setting up drone facilities in Russia. I don't think the Russians need help fabricating drone bodies, so I think what the Iranians bring to that is truckloads of chips, and that's you know this is something that is is concerning because if the Russians actually can get chips at scale, then their ability to start regenerating these things will, will be more significant setting aside the fun conversation that we had in an ISW update yesterday or the day before about how they're, somebody's trying to build drones in a sauna in Russia because they don't have a proper, which is strange. So, But Yulia, I don't, I don't think we're seeing anything that would suggest that we're likely to see rains of Russian precision missiles. It's also not clear that we're going to see rains of Iranian drones either, although it's a bit harder to tell about that. We're getting mixed signals about that from everybody. But I will tell you what I'm worried about, that the Russians, first of all, I think have figured out that the whole rains of missiles thing was not achieving the effect that they wanted it to achieve. They were killing people, they were shutting down the electrical grid, although not for as long as they wanted to. And it, it just wasn't achieving a strategic effect. So they fundamentally were throwing those, from their perspective, were throwing those missiles away. I'm more alarmed about a, a comment that we read in a Russia and that I still be reported on from a Russian news aggregator, the pro-Kremlin news aggregator, suggesting that the Russians should use their limited remaining stock of precision missiles to hit the electrical substations that provide the emergency power to Ukraine's nuclear power plants to force emergency shutdowns of those power plants. And which would be, according to this, I, I haven't looked at the tech specs of these nuclear reactors and probably wouldn't mean anything to me anyway. But according to this aggregator, these reactors are the type that a hard shutdown like that would put them out of commission for a long time. The Russians... The Russian, MO, the Russians, of course, didn't respond directly to that statement, except the Russian MOT the next day put out a statement accusing the Ukrainians of preparing false flag radiological attacks. Hmm. That, that makes me nervous. So the Russians could, not in the sense, I don't actually think this would generate radiological uh, effects. I don't think the Russians are trying to do that. I don't think they, that, that this would have that effect. I am worried that they can identify the, the ball bearing plants of this Uh, of the Ukrainian electrical system in this way, um, you know, the real centers of gravity that if they took out very precisely would generate real nonlinear effects and go after those. Um, that That is more concerning to me right now than the prospect of raining precision missiles. Now I'm talking about precision missiles. They have metric tons of S-300s 
those are not precise. They are small. You know, they have about 150 kilogram warhead, which is small as a military grade warhead for ground attack. It's not small if you're on the receiving end of it. They can rain those down on Kiev. They can, you know, I mean, they, they can just fire lots and lots of inaccurate systems. They could do that. But again, it's other than just sort of generating a bunch of Schrecklichkeit because Russians do that, I don't know. It's not clear to me what effect that would likely actually achieve for them, but they could. To wrap things up, Fred, you've been very generous uh, with your time. I'd like to return to something you alluded to early on, and that is the contest or conflict, whatever you care to call it, and I wish you would uh, try to define what you think it will be like, sort of after the Ukraine war or the Ukraine campaign comes to some happy conclusion. Everybody, I mean, there's an undying belief uh, across the West that there is a normal to return to. And that is increasingly difficult to see, but not to you know lead the witness too much. What do you see as kind of the long-term outlook you know, uh, I don't want to say beyond Ukraine because Ukraine would be a central part of that, but um, the larger sort of competition that is almost certain to continue uh, with the Russians and, and to likely continue Putin or no Putin. Well, right. So the first bifurcation is, does Putinism continue to run Russia or is something else run Russia? Let's assume that it will continue to be Putinism whether it's Putin or whether it's someone who is like like him in attitude, which is, of course, what you should forecast, however much we would like it to be something else. A prudent yeah. person would. Yeah. If it's not, if Putinism is gone, then we're in a whole other world and potentially in a, in a happier place, although, of course, it can be various unhappy ways that that can happen. But let's set that aside. So let's assume that Putinism continues in Russia. Russia has changed. Putin has changed it. To begin with, Russia has lost uh, 200,000 killed or badly injured personnel by most recent estimates, including 60,000 dead in a year, keeping in mind that what did we lose? 65,000 in 10 years in Vietnam and had hundreds of thousands of people flee. This war has been transformative uh, for Russia and not in a good way. It has brought a lot of Russian uh, jingoism uh to great prominence, a lot of Russian racism. We're seeing a lot of very deep racism um, being powered against Russian um, minorities. The turn to the Orthodox Church that Putin has made, very reminiscent to the turn that Stalin made in the Second World War, is empowering a kind of religious fanaticism that had not characterized the Putinist regime uh, as much before the war. Um, and Putin is really leaning into this. So this is a this is a Russia. This is a frothing at the mouth, uh, true Christian prince, savior of the Western world from pedophilia and all of that sort of nonsense that was in Putin's uh, speech, but which is constantly repeated now. This is a different Russia from the Russia that we engaged with before the war, and that's not going to that's not going to go back. That the things like that don't just change. 
Um, it's not like the war ends and then everybody wakes up from a bad dream and says, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're the, we're the Russians. We're the old Russians. Well, I still have my reset button. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that that's not going to happen. So you're dealing with it with a very much more embittered, angry, aggressive, racist, ultra-nationalist, uh, religious extremist Russia that, and that is the Russia that we should expect to have to deal with. That's not a Russia that we're doing, you know, we're talking about all of the areas of potential collaboration around the world with. This is a Russia that has decided that, you know, we are the number one enemy and NATO must be destroyed. So we have to get ourselves into that mindset and understand it. But other things have happened that are not going to be undone. Putin has made come true the nightmare that he claims to have been trying to avoid. Before this invasion, Ukrainians were obviously much less ambivalent about Russia than every, a lot of people thought they were. I didn't. If you had been talking with actual Ukrainians, you would know that they were not ambivalent. But a lot of people thought they were ambivalent. Certainly, they had been very much more ambivalent before 2014. They're not ambivalent anymore. Putin has turned his neighbor into a bitter enemy and a generationally bitter enemy. I'm actually a little scared at how much Ukrainians are coming to hate Russians, not just Russia, but Russians, partly because, and I say to my Ukrainian friends, there are elements of Russian culture that Ukraine can call its own, actually, and I fear that the Ukrainians will unintentionally cede to Russia <laughs> aspects of Ukraine's own history and culture, just because they're, they're portrayed as Russian. But from a geostrategic perspective, th th these are these Russia and Ukraine are now bitter enemies. And that was not a feature of the geopolitical landscape before this invasion, but it will be a permanent feature of the geopolitical landscape. So what does that mean? It means that a Putinist Russia will never stop trying to conquer Ukraine. It will not. It cannot. If Russia is defeated, it will seek vengeance. If the victory is partial, it will seek to complete it. There's that, that, that is the world that we're in because of the emotions that have been aroused on both sides. And Ukrainians will not surrender. Ukrainians will fight. So we have to understand that that is a reality. There's another reality that the ISW team pointed out yesterday that's also very important, which is, look, you know, Lukashenko had been in a evilly brilliant fashion, fending off Putin's efforts to re-warp Belarus into the bear's embrace in a way that is very impressive for an evil dictator um, because he did it with virtually no leverage, but he, he did it for many years. That game is basically over. Um, and what we're watching is Lukashenko is so terrified, I think, of the prospect of actually entering this war which would be a calamity for him, that he's effectively trading all the cards that he'd been holding before. And the net effect is that Belarus is going to be reabsorbed into the Russian Federation. Now, that's a big deal. Because, you know, before we started this war, the Russian border, apart from Kaliningrad, was the width of Belarus away from the Polish border in Lithuania and the Suwalki corridor. That's not going to be true going forward. We're, we are, we're going to live in a world in which there are Russian forces permanently stationed on the, on the Suwalki corridor, on the Polish border, 
from two directions and so on. That That is going to be transformative of the European situa- uh, security situation as Russia rebuilds its conventional military capability. That's a permanent change. So, uh, you know, I could go on with other things, but the bottom line is that the, we are in a new world. There are some upsides to it. We've seen much greater European unity. We've seen much greater willingness of Europeans to work together with us in their own interest. I think we are going to see long-term changes in European defense spending patterns. As a result of this, Europeans have gotten scared. Um, I don't think that's going to wear off that fast because the bear will continue to look scary. Um, The Europeans have decoupled from Russian energy, and I think that that will continue. I think that will be a permanent new feature, so we have to think about the implications of that. But the one thing that isn't going to happen is we're not going to get into a time machine and go back to January 2022. That that isn't going to happen. We're in a new world. Well, it's certainly the case that the Poles are not going to uh, want to return to the status status quo. (laughs) Fred, you've given us all so much hope for the coming year (laughs) in a real Eastern Front kind of way. The outlook is always cloudy and uh, overcast. Uh, If it's not snowing, it's probably raining. Um, But this is what we live for. Um, I I thank you so much for for joining us. Your your, uh, not only your technical knowledge about what's happening on the immediate battlefront, but uh, your ability to connect it to the larger geopolitical picture is uh, is always a treat and, and most useful. So thanks a ton. So um, from me, Giselle Donnelly and... Julia Zoja in an absence, Tari Borohaj. Uh, thank you, our dear listeners, uh, for tuning into the Eastern Front. You know, our podcast is dedicated to examining the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more of this happy talk and additional content at AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, all one word. Let me also say that... Uh, for, for those of you who really want to track the war, um, uh, subscribing to the Institute for the Study of War and their updates is uh, um, both an addictive but an informative uh, uh, way to keep track of things. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Uh, finally, uh, the Eastern Front uh, newsletter is now up and available at AEI. You can sign up for it. Uh, through the link that's in the show notes, and you'll get a bi-weekly update uh, of everything that we uh, write, newly released episodes, and exclusive questions and answers with your humble hosts. Um, So until next time, thank you very much, and we'll see you further down the road.